It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey. Hello. Hey. Want to know about something something pretty cool? Yeah. Uh, We're doing extra episodes. (laughs) We're doing extra episodes, everyone. (laughs) Bonus episodes for your listening pleasure. VIP. Super VIP. Super cool. All the time. Yes. All you have to do is head over to our Patreon. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash Art History Babes. Mm-hmm. You can donate $1. You yeah. can donate $5. Yeah. You can donate $100. Whoa. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you can donate whatever your little heart desires, and you will have access to monthly bonus episodes. So if you just cannot get enough of the Art History Babes, you should definitely check it out. Yeah. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. And the episodes are great. We've yeah. done one. It was and we're great. gonna do more. And it was good. More. It was really good. It was really yeah. it was really topical and really <laughs> <It was> interesting. <laughs> very relevant. Yeah. Everybody check it out. And uh thanks. Thanks so much. From podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Ginny. I'm Jen. And we are the Art History Babes. And today we have a very special guest, friend of the Art History Babes, <laughs> Mr. Alan Templeton. Hello, Alan. <laughs> Hello. I'm happy to be here. We're we're so happy to have you. We are so happy to yeah. have you. This has been such a lovely afternoon with our friend Alan talking about the art world yes. and all of its little intricacies. So before we really jump into some of these topics that I think are really fascinating and we don't really ever talk about. Yeah, we haven't really it. touched on a lot. Um, yeah. Would you give us a little introduction of yourself. <laughs> okay, I will try. What, what are you about? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Well, uh, so I went to Davis as for undergrad, and so that was 78 to 82, and I picked Davis because I figured I would spend most of my life in big cities, and I thought, mm, yeah. Davis is a really good school, but it's not in a big city, mm-hmm. and that uh, I would end up meeting people, becoming friends with people who are nothing like the people I, I grew up with. Sure. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that was good. And it also had the most famous art department in the country at that time. Oh, that's true. You were there when it was popping. Yeah. So, yeah. in fact... That I must mean, have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? It wasn't as cool as I thought it was. <laughs> so, in fact, it's a really... I hadn't thought of this before, but I think it's something interesting to say, is that um, there were some really good artists at Davis. And when I went there, I thought I would either go into art studio or mathematics or psychology. Wow. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
I had far-ranging interests. Mm -hmm. What I ended up doing is I majored in both art history and psychology. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was pretty passionate about both of them. Yeah. And, um, and I, so I majored in art history because I felt the teachers were better in art history than they were in the art studio program. But back then, it's probably not true now, but back then when you were a freshman and a sophomore, you were appointed a faculty advisor so you would have someone to talk to. Sure. And I didn't know what I was really was going to do. And I had the great fortune to have Roland Peterson as my faculty advisor, who is this really interesting artist. I think he's still underrated. He's an extremely interesting painter. And we just talked about things. I liked him so much. This is my first art history initiative. <laughs> I invited Roland Peterson to give a slide lecture on his art to my dorm. Oh, oh my God, that's, that's amazing! What? So that's lovely. So awesome. Because I thought he was so great. Because yeah. he's a good artist and he was a nice person. Mm -hmm. yes. That's not Important. always not always the case. <laughs> oh yeah, as we have learned. <laughs> um, so was he in art studio? Or, yes. Or, okay, art studio. Art studio. He was just, but he was just assigned to me by chance. Okay. Huge, wow. huge good luck there. Definitely. He was super nice, and I I met him again recently at an event oh, at cool. Davis, and I thanked him for being so great. Wow, and that's he, really cool. So he didn't remember me, which is understandable. <laughs> it's a long time ago, but he remembered being a faculty advisor. Sure. Yeah. So he understood what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, good. Really. But the thing is, so there were these incredible artists. And so I really liked Roland Peterson and Wayne Thiebaud, mm -hmm. those two the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're amazing people. But as a student, you get often the not-so-great people in the first classes. And there was this guest. I think she was just a guest teacher. I had the worst teacher I've ever had for drawing. Oh, no. <laughs> and she crushed my will to <gasps> want to study in oh, art studio. Oh, what a bummer. It That's was, the worst when you hear gosh, that. <laughs> I know. I hear, I've heard things like that before mm -hmm. about like having a horrible professor that just kills your enthusiasm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I had teachers like that for art studio and philosophy, two things oh. I like a lot. Yeah. So oh, I only no. took one, I took two art studio classes and I took one philosophy. The philosophy professor was so bad, I decided before the class was over, I would never take another philosophy class. <laughs> <laughs> he was so awful. Oh, no. All these things. I love the world of ideas. He, yeah. he was just soul destroying. Oh, wow. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, so... Just a quick yeah. FYI, <laughs> we're talking about UC Davis um, in California, um, just because I realized we've been saying oh, Davis this right, whole time. Right. So UC Davis. And, which is yes, where we went as well, which yes. we kept under wraps right. until just <laughs> we that now. Um, now we don't go there anymore. So, right. so everyone knows. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so we have this connection to this campus, and, um, and I love hearing that it was this super poppin' like art oh, scene? Yeah, because yeah. I mean, yeah, that's who would have thought of UC Davis mm -hmm. like, today, really? Right. Without, so 
I, I've got to say this. So my parents spent their whole careers at UC Berkeley in chemistry. I've known Berkeley my whole life. Berkeley as a great university at that time, especially, it did not have a very good art studio program. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just me. Lots of people felt that way. Yeah, yeah. And I've talked to people who went through it and felt like they didn't really get the education they were hoping for. Now, at Davis, I had many, many good professors, but I do feel like it's important to state that not every teacher is good. And yeah. when you're 18 or 19, if you have one of those awful people, it's just, it's like someone hitting you over the head and saying, don't do this. It really yeah, is. Yeah, definitely. It'd be very discouraging. So in fact, I came to art history because they were better teachers. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, the, the professors in art history, they taught me how to write as an adult, mm -hmm. how to how to talk about things that are nonverbal mm -hmm. and and put it into comprehensible language. Yeah. And so that ability to communicate better, I learned from art history. And I also feel like they taught me how to become an active viewer. And I feel that the majority of the population, including many of the best educated people in America, yes. are very passive in how they look at things. Yeah. And so it's a huge problem. So first of all, anyone out there who feels like you have to defend yourself as to why you're interested in art and art history, it's extremely important to be a good observer in life. Yes. Whatever you go into. Mm -hmm. And so that needs to be validated and appreciated. Definitely. Yeah. And we've said a few times in our episodes, because we've had some people message saying, you know, oh, I want to be an art history major, but people will make fun of me or whatever. And we've talked about that in the way of being able to look and observe it and talk about what you see. And especially when we, like we've said many times on the podcast before, our culture is becoming more and more and more visual. Yes. So now more than ever, if anything, it's it's a great major to have in being able to talk about what you see and be able to write about what you see and communicate that to other, um, mm -hmm. to other people. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not they're in art or art history. Yeah. I think that... What you said about being an active observer mm -hmm. is so vital, and it's really, it, it can never be more relevant today. Mm -hmm. We're just getting bombarded with images all the time, mm -hmm. and it seems <laughs> all the time, you know, um, you, can't, you can't deny it that anywhere you go, it's some, something is being advertised to you in one way or another, and um, I just really appreciate that about art history so it's validating for me yeah. to hear that that yeah. oh yes like actually yeah here's why but yeah we were having this whole conversation about art history being um a valid discipline and honestly I feel like we say that in almost every episode <laughs> <laughs> we really want to not only convince those who don't think that way but also reassure yeah. our listeners that yeah are very passionate about this subject. Totally. It's really important, and I feel like... So, uh, one of the things to keep in mind is that... Well, first of all, so, I've done a variety of things in life, but the reason I'm able to be an art collector and an art donor and a philanthropist, period, mm -hmm. 
is because starting when I was nine and a half, I've been investing in the stock market. You were nine and a half? Yes, I was. <laughs> wow. Okay, so, so yeah, we need to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> How did this happen? So, this probably doesn't happen in every podcast. Yes. So, <laughs> this is what happened is I had this very nice great uncle, Otto Stern, who was a prominent physicist, and he left my sister and my cousin and me each a third of his General Motors stock. So that was something like, was, <laughs> wow! He didn't have any children or descendants of yeah. his own, so yeah. he left it to. I mean, he 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 left um, more to my mom, I think. Although, of course, this was never discussed. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the uh, he left, so it was probably worth something like sixteen thousand dollars, something like that. But that's. That's in 1969. That was a lot more than it is now. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is, and I wish this upon everyone to have an experience like this. So I had this terrific father. And uh, he told me when I was nine and a half, <laughs> he said, okay, Alan, you're a stockholder now because Otto left you this stock. And I will let you decide how to invest it as long as you don't ask for something ridiculous. Yeah. And so it meant that for the next 12 years, I had an apprenticeship from my father in how to invest. Yeah. And That's that, great. That, yeah, that is great. Everybody <laughs> needs that. You need, need, you need to save for the future. You need those assets to grow. If you start when you're nine and a half, it's a lot easier for it to work out. Sure. So for all of our nine and a half year old listeners out there, of which I bet there are several. <laughs> that is amazing because I've wondered that too. I, I yeah. really wondered this about you. Like, how did he do it? What the hell? <laughs> I'm thinking like, okay, he went to UC Davis, did an undergraduate degree um, in art history. And, and you went to grad school for art history as well, but decided I only not did, so much. I only did it for a year. I went to yeah. Boston University, and I had this terrific professor, Alice Binion, who changed my life because she showed all of us how profoundly interesting the 18th century is. And by the way, this is a good tip for any of you that want to become art history professors. The way she handled, so she had a seminar on the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And she didn't just teach us the history of art of the 18th century. She taught us the entire cultural and political world mm -hmm. of the 18th century. Amazing. So it was yeah. comprehensive. Mm -hmm. And she was just this brilliant thinker. And she was a connoisseur. She was an art historian. She was also just a really interesting person. Yeah. And I think part of what makes certain people great teachers is that they don't hide their personality. They infuse the material Definitely. with their point of view, with their feelings. She would yeah. go on these digressions, which were like fascinating. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good digression. We, uh, we're pretty, we're pretty good at digressions on uh, the yeah, podcast. We do it a lot. <laughs> yeah, that is so fascinating. So what ended up propelling you to just say, like, I don't yeah. want to do grad school anymore? It's a really good question. So part of it is the two professors that were far and away 
the best ones for me mm-hmm. were Alice Binion, who had tenure but was very poorly treated by the important people in yeah. the department. Mm-hmm. And I saw that dynamic, and I was thinking, I don't want anything to do with that. Mm. Yeah. The vibe was bad in some ways, and some of the professors acted badly. They thought that they were above their peers and are certainly far above us. Mm-hmm. I didn't like mm-hmm. that. And the other thing is... I realized that you can have a life which is strongly involved in the art world without being an art professional. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so I feel like, in a way, we've made it too all or nothing in a lot of people's minds. Either you go into art studio or art history and you devote your life to it, or you just give up. And, and yep. it's just like totally Never speak of it again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I'm here to tell you that there are lots of other choices. You can be involved in it in many different ways. So in fact, I have to say the the thing that I've done that's most narrowly art historical that has been the most satisfying is I have been a guest curator for three shows at the Crocker in Sacramento. Right. And also I did a small show years ago at Laney College in Oakland. Mm -hmm. And those four shows of curating other people's work, mainly work from the past, uh, was hugely satisfying. And so that's another thing is that basically what happened when I decided to give up on the graduate school is I decided I don't want to be a professor of art history. Right. I just want to be involved with art. Mm-hmm. And I also decided that it's helpful to make, to do several things in life and to have other streams of income. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so this shows you that I'm not as smart as maybe some people think I am. That What did I do next? I taught English at, at the... Apparently, based on test scores, the worst high school in Boston, (laughs) Dorchester High, which, by the way, is a wonderful place. (laughs) But these kids, these kids were poor and they needed first rate teachers. And what were they getting? They were getting people like me who didn't know what they were doing. So I tried. I tried. But it was so hard. So having a professional career in the art world is hard. Being a good teacher in a struggling school is harder. Mm-hmm. It's not well paid. It's not well supported, and yeah. it lacks prestige. Right. So after that, then I decided, okay, so I'm not going to save the world, <laughs> or at least not quickly. <laughs> and I don't want to be an art art history professor. So I did a variety of things, and the the, the sensible job I had. Uh, which really helped me get ahead was I worked for a labor union. Yeah. I was just the office manager in a regional office of a labor union, mm-hmm. which had extremely good benefits. And oh, I bet. Yep. Yeah. So at an earlier time, everyone almost got good benefits who had any kind of a proper job. Now it's much more something you have to pick and choose to find, but mm-hmm. then it was more normal. Mm-hmm. So I had superb health coverage, the most generous retirement plan I've ever come across where they put in a dollar twenty for every dollar I put in. What? Up to, and I could, in the maximum wow. match, 
you put in 15% of your income and they match it with 18% more wow. of your total income. So it means basically 33% of my income going to retirement. Oh, wow. And it was superb. <laughs> yes. So I'm sorry to depress any of the young people. I know. We're all yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking about my mountains of student loan debt and like oh, yeah. my zero job prospects. Oh, so this is the difference. So I'm 57. My generation was heavily subsidized. The state of California, for my era, paid more than 70% of all the costs at UC Davis. And now the state government pays less than 10%. Yeah. If there's something you want to do politically, stand up for the public universities in our states and tell your state assembly that you want them to support the universities. Because my generation started adult life with virtually no debt. Right, right. It's a huge advantage. Oh, Definitely. totally. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really, I mean, this is oh, such a problem. It makes me so upset. But, um, I know. I get worked up about I it. I really do. But there is no way that these companies are ever going to get the money that they've loaned out because people can't afford to pay it back. So right. this is an unsustainable yeah. trend. Right. And I think we're banking on it, literally. Um, we're banking on it, like, going bust so that we just don't have to pay them back. In the meantime... Um, because it's that ridiculous at this point. It really is... You can't think about it because you'd be paralyzed. Right. It is paralyzing. It, it, you just can't. It, it has to kind of be imaginary money, yeah. even though I'm yeah. not claiming that's a responsible approach. Right. But it's the only way to really keep going forward and being mm. hopeful about right. your financial future. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's just that bad. As, right. a, as a society of uh, young people in our mid to late 20s, out of undergrad, out of grad school, I mean, we have gotten so good at compartmentalizing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just like, no, I'm not going to think about it. And let me tell you, so true. I don't. I don't think about it. I really don't. When, I, when I'm forced to think about it, I'm just like mad. And yeah. then I like quickly forget about it because right. there's no other way. So. Right. You know, um, Alan, you are just describing this, like, magical time, <laughs> and, uh, and we're just so, it, you're, like, telling us a fairy tale. Yeah. This is, like, story time. It and, is story time. And I'm, I'm just so astounded. So The yeah, best stories 70%. are true. <laughs> exactly. That's so true. Over 70%. Yeah. yeah. So Especially now, yeah. into, like... Today's American culture, more and more people are expected to go on to graduate school. Yes. Yeah. And you have there are more and more jobs that require a master's degree or a PhD. And so more and more people are going on and continuing on school and accumulating more debt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. It's, <laughs> it's wild that it, it's come to that but, point. But well, yeah. And so I mean, we're not trying to bum everybody out, but the, I mean, the the thing though that um so really the way that we met alan templeton because the universities are so just severely underfunded nowadays um education is just an afterthought for mm -hmm. our state government mm -hmm. so you have returned to UC Davis very generously and have allowed for there to be the yearly 
uh, Templeton Colloquium, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. how did that whole thing get started? Oh, yeah. Okay. So actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I think in a way this will be uh, helpful. I decided, let's see. So that was, I guess it's in 2010, I decided that I wanted to start helping the subjects at UC Davis that I care about because mm-hmm. I saw that, now I forget the exact timing, but I want to just mention this because this is abhorrent to me. Um, the Oakland Public Library, which I love and adore mm-hmm. and support and use all the time, the main library my whole life had this wonderful collection of books in French. And one day I went to the main library and I wanted to check out a book in French. I read French. Uh, It's good to read more than one language. And I couldn't find the book I was looking for. So I go to the desk. I said, well, I can't find the book. Where is it? And the woman behind the counter said, oh, we got rid of all the French books. Uh, All of them. That is Devastating. Yeah. For why? It's it's pathetic. So they had thousands of books in French. It was a wonderful collection. And they had many languages. It's not just French. It's just that I can read French. And um, they, she told me that I was one of the few people that ever checked out a French book. Oh, wow. And so they got rid of all the French books. They didn't just put it in another building. They just got rid of them. I think they threw them away. It's my impression. Oh, Oh, God. What a waste. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Just donate them or something. Yeah. So the the combination of the Great Recession, the Mm -hmm. financial crisis, Mm -hmm. the the panic, the general panic in the society, (laughs) and the fact that they threw out their French books, I'm thinking... Maybe I should do something to reverse this tidal wave. Yeah. <laughs> French books were the last straw. <laughs> it's unbearable. So I don't want to live in a California where there are no French books, where no one knows I mean, who does? <laughs> who does? That is where I draw the line. It's not okay. Right. So this, I know this, I mean, I, it always comes back to art history, but I mean, come on. At least mm-hmm. they still have art history books at the library, but now yeah. I'm a little. Now I'm questioning myself on right. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because no. everything now in many public institutions is all about how many people use it. Exactly. If you don't have big numbers, you're put at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't yeah. matter if you are doing brilliant work. If right. you don't have a lot of people showing up, you apparently have less value. Right. So I will fight that to the end of my day. <laughs> That is profoundly wrong. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So, but this is the part that I didn't count on. So I contacted UC Davis and I said that I would like to start helping the art history program. And I'd like to talk to someone about what would be the good way to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Now there's a whole industry at every university where you basically have a whole department, which is just about fundraising and having good relations with the donors because they all need to raise money because they don't get enough support from the state. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole infrastructure. So it means that I was mainly talking to the professional fundraisers, not to the art history department as much. Right. So I thought I would just be having this pleasant lunch with the art history department. Professors, which (laughs) whom I adore. Yes. And uh, so instead, I had 
lunches with people I didn't know who were nice, but they just, they were fundraising people and they don't really know very much about the subject. Yeah. So I realized that I had had this completely false image that you somehow appear as a donor and then they're all set up for you. And then you just say, yes, I want to support the art history program. And then they, they, they roll out a nice, Dossier telling you how to do that. No, <laughs> boy, was that, I wrong. That'd be too easy. That's way too easy. So what I realized is that I had to figure out how to do it and tell them this is what I would like to do because mm-hmm. no one in the hundred and ten year history of Davis, no one has ever come forward and said I want to help the art history program in a big way. Yeah, it just hasn't happened before. Right. Not so surprised. <laughs> there's no history, and it also means that even the professors themselves, in many departments, in fact, every subject that I like, mm-hmm. they don't have a, that many people helping them. So they themselves, both the professional fundraisers and the professors, need to try to reinvent the wheel to a certain degree. Right. So I decided, oh, okay, then I'll just make the wheel that I want. Mm-hmm. Again, it goes back to the being an active participant in life and not a passive one. Mm-hmm. And so then I realized, okay, what do I want to do? So then I realized the big goal is eventually to build up a fund big enough so that it can be become the support for an endowed chair in art history. Yeah. And so that will happen, and the uh, Templeton chair will come into existence in 2020. Which is Woo! so great. That's so very exciting. exciting. So neat. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's so great too. I mean, you know, these colloquiums are always so interesting mm. and mm-hmm. cool. And we, from an insider's point of view, mm-hmm. the department is in a frenzy when it's <laughs> Templeton season. <laughs> so we're just like, oh, like, you know, everyone's gotta go. Like, tell everybody about it. <laughs> posters everywhere and yeah. it's just um you know i've been personally to uh three of them mm-hmm. um I, I went to one uh i went to the one in 2013 mm-hmm. um and then the last two mm-hmm. while in the program yeah. and they're just always so fascinating and you meet these amazing scholars yeah. um oh, yeah. and just i mean the one that i loved mm-hmm. was the 20 uh 16 convergent cultures so who comes up with who they're going to invite or what the theme is so right so that was i realized when i first started helping that there should be something ongoing and i figured so first of all that i would fund a colloquium each year and that we should bring in top people from Mm -hmm. all over to talk about what they know right Mm -hmm. and that that's energizing for the professors and for the students exactly it really is and as one of the professors told me it's become a thing yeah (laughs) Yeah, it is a thing it's great and it gets more visibility for our department especially because i know that other departments at davis that are have larger numbers and funding they have lecture series multiple times yes. a year where they fly people in and all of this oh, yeah. and you know for so long art history didn't really have anything like that and now that we have the colloquium series like it it's more opportunities for undergrads to come in and hear different professors from outside of Davis yeah, and yeah. it gave me a lot of ideas that later branched out into my thesis topic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah I mean it's yeah it's 
Great. So, so the art history professors decided basically that uh, for any given year, one of them is the lead person to organize the colloquium. Mm-hmm. And they always ask me if I have anyone I want to suggest. Either I can suggest a speaker or a subject. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what they do now, they've gotten good at it. What they do is the lead professor then as a group they decide what the subject will be and they take suggestions on people and then they start asking colleagues at other universities who would they suggest for that subject yeah Mm -hmm. so they purposely reach out to top people and ask them who do you think might be a good person yeah and then they decide who to invite the the first year that we did it and this is my fault as much as anyone we made the mistake thinking that this would be a good way to start the school year but davis is very hot at the beginning of the school so year. true so that was not a good idea <laughs> and it's, ran everyone into a room it was so hot oh, and it was 110 degrees the yeah. ventilation was terrible it was a, it was not good oh no. So some people swore to never come again. Oh. So then I finally <laughs> woke up. Miserable so, experience. <laughs> I'm a slow learner, but I do learn. And so then I said, you know what? Let's have the colloquium in winter quarter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because many, many of the guest speakers are coming from colder places. And this yeah. way, it's yes. a free vacation to California. Yeah. Who says no to that? Yeah. yeah. It, the right? coldest it really gets is like 60. Yeah. We we're bundled up in our coats. Yeah. Like, oh, it's so cold. <laughs> um, so, in fact, if you do, uh, there's a strong correlation between really famous art history programs and really terrible winters. Yeah. There's a lot of that. What? For sure. Interesting. I've never heard that. Yeah. That makes sense. I am learning so much. Yeah. Um, interesting. God, that is so, so interesting. Yeah. Um, so they keep coming. So almost everyone says yes. That's so good. <laughs> and there have been great speakers. And yeah. I'm excited to hear what the one this year, because most of us will be around either Oh, for sure. The area. In the area. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I want to come to this we one could, and we can We could potentially, yeah, do something with the podcast for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah that, that could be really cool. With them. And mm-hmm. I want to really put a little bug in someone's ear and just be like Mesoamerica or Latino art. Like something, because you know why? Because UC Davis is pushing to become a Hispanic-serving institution. This is a whole thing that um, actually last year I took a um, curatorial principles class and we put on a show, and it was this very sort of, like, political um, show that, I mean, visually it kind of ended up not making a lot of sense, but that's okay. I thought you guys did a great job with it. I loved it. It was really fun. Especially given the resources you had and stuff. I thought it was great. Right. Um, I think that, you know, UC Davis really, really wants to have their Latino students Mm -hmm. because if they have a 25% Latino um, undergraduate population, they get the designation of being a Hispanic-serving institution, which means they get money. And the money, though, goes to making some dumb center that (laughs) isn't useful. I'm sorry. Like, it's just not. Yeah. It's not useful. They don't need more buildings. You know what? uh, This is the thing, though, that I've learned so so since since 2000, I've been a donor to the Crocker Art Museum mm-hmm. of artwork, and 
more recently, I've been helping the Berkeley Art Museum as well. But I have the oh, longest, nice. yeah, I have the longest um, experience with the Crocker. One of the things I learned is that it's dramatically easier to raise money for a building than it is for current use or just mundane expenses mm -hmm. or any of the things that are really mm. essential because not everyone but there are a number of prominent people who give money who want a tangible building to say oh. this is what i did that yes. makes I totally so much sense right. but like it's, it's infuriating yeah. <laughs> it's deeply disturbing but it's also deeply human yeah right and we yeah. just want to big, build big, beautiful things with our name on them, right. like all the time. Right. <sighs> so I didn't appreciate how big a factor that was until I became a donor, because mm -hmm. the two things that I'm doing mainly are giving artwork for permanent collections and creating endowment funds mm -hmm. to support art history. Mm -hmm. There's a there's another one, a small one at Davis that I intend to grow that helps the humanities more broadly. Okay. And what I realized, so I've been investing since I was nine and a half. I know the power of time in building wealth. It's right. essential. Mm -hmm. So you can do actually a lot more good through endowment funds, but you have to be patient. Mm. And so it will take years and years for the endowment funds to really have a big impact, but it will happen. But the building comes up right in front of you. In a couple of years, you have this object. You can point it out to right. your friends. Yeah. Sure. So basically, because of what I've learned about how the Crocker had such a hard time raising money for anything other than a building expansion, mm -hmm. that I realized I will never give a big <laughs> contribution to a, for a building. Yeah, how ridiculous. Like, the Templeton the, Lecture Hall. The, yes. <laughs> Templeton Center. Yes, so please don't build a Templeton Center. Yeah, yeah. You I'm, could just call it, like, there could be a play on words, even like a temple, like Templeton. <laughs> Temple. Yeah. No. Oh, that's right. amazing. It's the temple. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like I'm learning so much today. Yeah. Um, I think maybe we should take a quick break and then maybe get a little bit more into um, your history as mm -hmm. like a collector. Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. Great. yeah. Start getting into the, the nitty gritty. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll be right back. Hey dog, do you like BarkBox? Well, you heard him, folks. And luckily for you, BarkBox is offering an opportunity to receive one free extra month of BarkBox at BarkBox.com. For humans, BarkBox is a delivery of four to six natural treats and super fun toys curated around a surprise theme each month. For dogs, BarkBox is like the joy of a million belly scratches. To receive one month free, go to getbarkbox.com slash babes. Again, that's getbarkbox.com slash B-A-B-E-S. People don't want to pay right. for things. No. Especially podcasts. Yeah. I think it's so it's it's one of the things that will be remembered about the current age is this resistance to pay for things of value. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that my generation was not prepared for at mm -hmm. all. Mm -hmm. And we didn't see this coming. And in mm -hmm. fact it's deeply 
disturbing to everyone I know who's you know close to my age who has done anything at all creative. This to us looks like this is like throwing out the French books. People have decided it doesn't have value anymore. Yeah. Why would you pay for music? Why would you pay right. for expertise? Oh my gosh! Right. Yeah, that's it's what true. they're saying. Mm-hmm. And oh, it's, it's deeply, really it's deeply disturbing. Yeah. But I think it's that we're in some sort of some sort of transitional period where people have not figured out how to make things work economically that are of intellectual or artistic value. That is also unsustainable. Right. Like the student debt, this is unsustainable. Right. Not paying yeah. for things. Yeah. In terms of this idea of people not wanting to pay for things a value anymore. How has that affected your experience with the art market and as an art collector? Oh yeah, it's actually it's a good question and it's it's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. I think that it it means that there are less participants in the market, that there are mm-hmm. less people buying. Yeah. Yeah. Because oh, there are Many people who love art, who feel that there's just no possible way they could ever afford anything they actually like. Yeah. And so, in fact, one of the things I've learned ever since, so it's in 99, that was the first time I ever bought a work of art with the idea of donating it to the to a museum. And oh, okay. I started in 99, and I started yeah. really slowly, and... I realized quickly that, in fact, there's a lot of art from the past that's affordable. The first problem is some people think it's impossible, so why even look? So that that's, that's my mindset. I know. It's I very similar to, like, housing. The idea of ever owning a home is, like, absolutely right. insane to me. Like. So it's just like it's just like the way people now say... Well, I could never live in San Francisco. It's too expensive. Well, it is too expensive. Mm-hmm. But you can still live in the Bay Area if right. you're willing to be flexible. And right. in the art market, so it's even worse. It's like, so first of all, I have to say this. That <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is, it's going to be very polemical today. Uh, yeah. the, the art world is weird enough, but it is made just into this ridiculous thing in the way that it's presented in the press. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. press has done an outstanding job of making people think, that the art world is only for really rich people who are competing with each other to outdo each other. Yes. That is a small percent of what's going on. There is a huge amount of art out there that is affordable. Mm -hmm. And so, and that includes the European old masters, which is what I love the most. First of all, don't believe what you see in the press, because what is covered mainly are... Those sales where something goes for an enormous amount right, of money. Definitely. That's true. And especially when it exceeds the estimates. Right. Yeah. So then it gives this impression that like you can have the worst possible drawing ever by uh, Rubens and it will go for millions of dollars. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's wrong. <laughs> that is so interesting. It like, is. That's so yeah. useful to know because I have always felt that way about the art market. I just think of it as this 
fantasy land where rich people just get together and are like, I'll take the Picasso for $50 million. And, and, and that, I think that, that does happen. I know. But well, sure. you like... I'm going to ride my leopard home. <laughs> and, you know, just, just like, take, a, take a bath in um, this aged... Olive oil? <laughs> and, no, it's, and I'm I've always just thought of yeah. it as yeah. this the completely inaccessible thing. Yeah. So I don't own a leopard. <laughs> Imagine my surprise. <laughs> it, so this is so by the way, this is another reason people should take art history classes. Mm -hmm. Is that when you have that direct involvement with the history, you start to see that the history of art is this really big, complicated thing. It's not a simple story. A lot of the public, and especially people who do marketing, think that the thing to do with whatever you're describing is to make, to present a really simple narrative. Mm -hmm. And so what has happened in the art market is that let's, uh, for example, I'll, I'll say something about the 18th century, because I'm very fond of the 18th century. Okay. There is this perception that the, the important art of the 18th century is basically Boucher, Fragonard, David, the, mm -hmm. oh, the view painters from Venice, yeah. and maybe a nice sculpture by Houdon, and yeah. that's it. Mm -hmm. yep. Wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. That is wrong. So... The 18th century is super interesting. There are hundreds of good people who are mm -hmm. active, but only a few of them are really, really expensive. And those artists are the ones that a more general cross-section of the middle class and upper classes have heard of. But it's about the people who are famous among the people who have not studied art history. Right. So anyone who's actually taken more than one art history class in a given area realizes how interesting and how complex the story is. And there is material available for sale from each of those past eras. Mm -hmm. Most people, so I've seen this firsthand because now in these recent years, I've been to many, many galleries, especially, and many of the best ones for the old masters are in Paris and London. So those two cities attract people from the entire world. Mm -hmm. And so when you go into those galleries, so here's the tip. There is tremendously good eavesdropping available at Sotheby's and Christie's in oh. London. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. That is like the top of the top. It even makes, like, New York is okay. London is way better for the eavesdropping. <laughs> I want to be a fly on the wall yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is the thing, is that you don't even have to be a fly on the wall. You can be physically noticeable. They just ignore you. Sure. <laughs> I would be ignored totally. Yeah. So I'm down to get ignored at Christie's. Don't feel bad, because I'm usually ignored too. It's because, because it, there are only... This is what happens on a social level at the pre-sale exhibits at the big auction houses in London. The personnel are very attuned to certain people that they know are likely to come. Sure. So if they see you and you're on the list of people that they've been told are important, mm -hmm. then they will come up to you. Mm -hmm. But that's only a small, that's a handful of people. Right. The rest of us are... 
very welcome but ignored. Mm -hmm. So you're ignored in a pleasant way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm telling you that eavesdropping cannot be beat. So you hear these conversations either between a potential buyer and an employee of the auction house or one of the buyers and a consultant that they've hired to go with them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of that. And that's the other, this is the next reason for why you should take art history classes is that if you study it and if you start developing a taste of your own, you have enough confidence to be able to say, well, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. going along with that. Or I like this better. I don't care what they say about that. I don't, yeah. You have to have enough belief in yourself to trust your own taste. And good taste doesn't just happen overnight. It comes with years of looking, years of thinking, mm. you evolve as a person, but it's the collection of all those memories of all the good things you've ever seen and the bad things that you've seen and being able to make distinctions that are meaningful. First of all, there are a limited number of people buying expensive art. And within that, so that seems obvious. What's less obvious is that my strong opinion now, after 17 years, 18 years of, of being a participant, mm -hmm. is that of that small group that's buying a lot of the art, only a minority within that have enough self-confidence to go against the prevailing taste. Mm -hmm. So I benefited from getting a very good education, highly subsidized by the state of California. <laughs> And I trust my own taste. Yeah. So thank you, California. Right. right. But it does mean it does mean that I have been able to give uh, the Crocker a number of wonderful things that mm -hmm. other people chose not to buy. Mm -hmm. At the same time that other people were spending fortunes on things that I wouldn't want in my apartment if you paid me. There are these tremendous dissonances in the market. And that is made worse by the fact that there are not that many participants. But what? So I'll give you an example. One of, one of the times I was in Sotheby's, and it's, I, I love visiting Sotheby's for the pre-sale exhibits. There was this man who was looking at this Picasso rather mm -hmm. carefully. Mm -hmm. It was not a good Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> Picasso did some very interesting work. I would say that there must be at least four bad Picassos for every good one. I mean, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> yeah, it was highly prolific. Right. Yeah, yes. churning out a lot of stuff. So and, I mean. and as Jen said before, they can't all be bangers. Like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So he was looking really closely, and, and one of the employees with, was with him. And so he was trying to judge if was it worth even bidding on. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to like it, and he seemed to like it more than some of the other things that were in the sale. And so the employee was just trying hard to give mm -hmm. him information, but it comes down to taste, but it also comes down for many people to the potential for resale later. Right, mm -hmm. right. So one of the most perverse things going on today is that because people have seen that other people, other collectors, have made a fortune by reselling, it means that some people are buying not because they're sure that it's a great work, but they think it might be a good investment. Mm -hmm. And that's been made worse by the fact that we've had now 
uh, eight and a half years in a row of low, low interest rates. Yeah. So for some people, it's a way to park money. Right. And mm -hmm. that yeah. that's dangerous. I've never yes. thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. So in fact, some some of the some of the important players in the art market today are not even individuals. They are banks and corporations right. who are buying art so that both there's something pleasant in the offices <laughs> and they'll sell it later for more. Yes, or they hope they will. Yeah, Whoa. right. And I think that's a part of the art market that people maybe hear about more and are adverse to. Yeah, and, you know, so I, that is. <laughs> it's a it's it's a factor, but I can tell you from personal exposure that the corporate buyers are overwhelmingly focusing on modern and contemporary. Sure. Okay. So in fact, I, in a way I kind of feel like it's a golden age to buy the old masters. Mm, that's it's, good to know. <laughs> all you have to do though is avoid. So there's tremendous interest and money. If someone really famous, if a work by one of the really famous people comes up, so if it's Rubens or Rembrandt, somebody of that fame, a whole lot of people will bid on it who normally don't really care. Mm -hmm. Right. So the prestige value is off the charts. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So say I bought a Rubens. Or, sure. Yeah, exactly. Sure. So I like Rubens. I cannot afford a Rubens. It's okay because there are lots of other good people. Right. Yes. Um, what? So you have spent a lot of time at these events. What is the worst thing you've ever seen? <laughs> like, what's the worst thing you've ever seen the most go amount of money. for the most amount of money? Oh. You're sitting in the room like, or just what's the worst thing you've ever seen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah did yeah. you ever, did you have any like crazy encounters yeah. like at an auction or like anything? Something like horrid. Right. So let's see. Okay, so that's an interesting question. I would say, uh, here's another tip. If you want to see the most ridiculous chorus, combinations of flawed art and high prices, go to New York in one of the weeks when they're having the big contemporary sales. Mm -hmm. So contemporary in this context really means art since World War II. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not just the current. It's really since 45. Okay. Okay, so this is super fun and free. <laughs> uh, go to Sotheby's New York when they're having the pre-sale exhibit for the big contemporary sales and walk around and eavesdrop and look. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so that's fertile ground for your question. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so I'll start with someone I like, an artist I like, and that's Rothko. Mm -hmm. so, oh. mm -hmm. so first of all, so I will never be giving anyone Rothko because they're way too expensive. Yeah, they're... But it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but I do respect him. I've actually always liked him. Yeah. He, uh, he, he is profoundly interesting. So this would have been two or three years ago. There were several Rothkos, but there was one in particular. There was a Rothko put up for sale at Sotheby's, which was in terrible condition. Mm -hmm. It was cracking. The color didn't look right. The frame was awful. Mm -hmm. It probably had been badly stored. It mm -hmm. was probably exposed to too much heat. Sure. Big yeah. swings of temperature. It was big. It had that going for it. <laughs> right. 
It's the worst Rothko I've ever seen for sale. Yeah, if the color wasn't right, then That's what do you have? Yeah, so <laughs> okay. much the purpose. So why would you buy a Rothko if the color didn't look right? Uh, yeah, yeah, like, right. it doesn't make any Rothko's sense. color. He is the color field painter. Yeah. Like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So this was the eye-opener for me, is that it is possible to sell for many, many, for tens of millions of dollars, a bad Rothko. And I didn't know that there was a Rothko this bad because it's been mistreated. Mm -hmm. Why would you buy such a Rothko? It's because uh, you believe you will be able to sell it later. And that to me says that too many people with a lot of money are taking a more speculative approach to the high end of the market. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So that can have a pernicious influence on the entire market. But at the same time, every $10 million that goes to a flawed contemporary piece is $10 million that's not competing with me. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, that's a good well, way, to great way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the the people who buy um, work from the 17th and 18th centuries, from really any of the old master periods, tend to be people who really like it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, this is also an example of how much things have changed. So in the 1980s, that's when I first started paying some attention to the art market, just because I thought it was interesting. I didn't mm -hmm. buy anything. Yeah. In the 80s, the atmosphere was very different in that the most prestige, the most glamour, the most stars, and I mean people like from film and music, sure. those people, if they wanted to be seen or they wanted to impress their friends, they bought old masters. Interesting. So a yeah. generation later, the people now who are buying, who are perhaps more interested in prestige and glamour, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. are buying contemporary. Right. It's upside down from how it was when I was young. At first, when I first noticed that was going on, I felt like, what's wrong with these people? But the reality is taste has changed. And, and for some people, it goes back to the confidence. If you do not trust your own taste, then it's safer to buy something more recent because mm -hmm. it's, it's far easier to be certain it really is by who we say it is. Right. And the, one of the things you have to keep in mind, especially at the auction houses, is that they have a very short amount of time to create those catalogs. So they can't spend months researching something mm -hmm. that they're not sure about. They right. make a, a guess. These are educated guesses. Right. But right. sometimes they're wrong. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. that's the disconnect. So if, let's say, you've spent the last 30 years having a brilliant career in law, in high tech, in international business, and you haven't been taking art history classes, and suddenly you get to a point in your life where you feel like, you know what, I should, I want, I want something really special to have. And yeah. then you think, but I don't know what to buy. And there are all these, there seem to be all these wolves and mm -hmm. who do you trust? Right. So it's, it's been suggested to me that part of the problem is that if you're thinking about buying a Gerhard Richter, and mm -hmm. I think Richter's a good artist, but the prices are... Crazy. Uh, they're totally crazy. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to spend that much dough on one picture, you better be damn sure it really is by Gerhard Richter. Right. Right. And that can be verified because he keeps good records and right. he's still alive. And I'm right. sure his yeah. notes are immaculate. Right. If 
you're looking at a work from the 18th century and they say to you, we think mm -hmm. it's by Boucher, mm -hmm. but we're not sure. Those people flee. They don't want anything to do with mm -hmm. it because right. they don't want one day to be having people over and say, look at my Boucher. And then someone says, well, you know what? I just read that. Apparently it's not a Boucher. Ruins the <laughs> night. <laughs> no one wants to be duped. No yeah. one wants to be duped. So, but, but I do feel like, I want to make sure I say this. I feel like actually for most of us, for anyone who's not among the super rich, but even really for them too, not all the time, but much of the time, you get better deals by going to the really good galleries. Mm -hmm. Because what often happens there is that the great galleries have deep connections with the collectors, and they know who wants to sell. Right. And they have relationships with those people, and, they, and the really good people in the commercial gallery world are able to evaluate what is a good picture, what is a not-so-good picture. Mm -hmm. So the top galleries get really good art, which often is brought to them directly by the families, quietly, mm -hmm. who usually don't disclose themselves, who mm -hmm. want to sell it without right. publicity. Right. And at a gallery, the, the good galleries, they research it, they, they pin it down if there's more to be learned about it, and they also tell you what's wrong with it, mm -hmm. very upfront. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about the galleries is that you start with a price and you talk it down. You negotiate down. The auctions, if, if, if people see it's a good picture, then it's a battle up. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So it's much, in a, and most of the time, it makes more sense to deal with the galleries. You can think about it. You can talk it over with other people. Sure. I'm buying for museums, so that means lots of people have to look at it. Right. So the gallery will ship it out to you. The gallery will let you come multiple times. They're patient. Yeah, and that's good to know. They yeah. And they yeah. know who the experts are. So they mm -hmm. know the collectors, but they also know the experts. If they're unsure, they hire the top people mm -hmm. who really know that area and mm -hmm. ask them, what do you think it is? And what do you think is going on? And how yeah. would you date it? Yeah. They go through all of that, and then they give you a nice written-up summary. And that is so much more useful. Now... You should never just buy something because the gallery tells you it's a great picture or that right. it's a good deal. You have to believe in it. Right. But it's right. when all those things line up. Mm -hmm. If I think it's good, if it makes sense historically, if there's some documentation, if the people who know a lot agree with me on basically what it is, if all that lines up and one of the museums I care about is interested, then it makes sense. I have a question. Is taste then driven by the market? Mm. That's a really good question. I I struggle with this myself. I think yeah. that I actually think what happens is that any given period has a prevailing taste, which is bigger than the people who actively participate in the market. And that taste, it's just the sort of thing of why are there not more young men taking art history classes? Because it wasn't a problem when I was in college. It was normal to take art history. Mm -hmm. Now you have to be brave to take art history if you're a man. <laughs> uh, you have to be brave to be a woman and be an art history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were just having this whole conversation earlier over lunch where we, we told Alan about how in our department, um, in our year, we had no men 
Right. Zero. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, year coming in after us, uh, we had one male student. Mm-hmm. And what? how many years was it? That it's been like five years. Yeah, it's been like, <laughs> like, oh like five years without mm-hmm. a male student. Mm-hmm. This is an entirely female faculty. I mean, they just hired a male professor. Mm-hmm. The, the faculty had been all female for a number of years. It is so strange how that is a thing. (laughs) So it makes no sense. But the thing is, so I feel like that is these trends that happen. It's also true in taste. So it does mean that I'll speak for myself. So I'm most interested in the 17th and 18th century in Europe. There's so much going on. The compositions are very complex. Mm -hmm. There are all these tremendous artists there's a, a tremendous amount of imagination in mm-hmm. many of those works, and they challenge themselves at a really high level, and they, are, they were competing with other really good people. The baseline was really high. Often, someone who's considered second tier, third tier from those centuries is actually better than a lot of people in other centuries, because there were just so many good artists. Right, right. So it's all relative to what else is going on in your time. Would I be as passionate about the 18th century if I had not had this brilliant professor? Right. And Mm -hmm. I cannot answer that. I don't know what I would be Mm -hmm. if I hadn't had that experience. Before I went to Boston, I actually thought that I might do a thesis on the Nabi. I was most interested at that time at the beginnings of modern art where there's this interesting combination of older influences, Asian influence, and something new. Mm -hmm. And it was creating this new kind of art. And I just thought that was really interesting. And then I went to Boston and then I had Professor Binion and and she, she wasn't trying to change me. She just did. Right. And then I realized <laughs> I actually prefer the 18th century. Mm-hmm. In my lifetime, since then, the 18th century has gotten less fashionable. It was never that fashionable. <laughs> it's worse now. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. And that is so yeah. true. And, and so it's, I mean, I guess what you're saying then is like your, your taste yeah. Is not driven by the market. I hope not. I don't think it that is. Yeah, I don't think it is. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, bring your home right now and you're looking around at the art that you own, and yeah. it's definitely not what's get it's it's not like that. What is that Modigliani head that sold a couple of years ago oh, for yeah. like an insane amount right. of money? Like right. so definitely it does seem like there is this market for modern and contemporary art and you are obviously buying these pieces out of love for this period and it's so much more interesting and personal that way though like I really I don't know I feel like just being surrounded by these works that you chose and, and, you know, getting to know you and know your process for picking out works. Like it's not like walking into any other 
art collector's house and them just being like, hey, look at my Picasso. Like, I feel like <laughs> these are... Because I felt like I should. Like, it was the next thing. Yeah. yeah I yeah. feel like yeah. this is very, like, you just lo- really like these paintings. And right. I think yeah. that's really cool and yeah. makes for a much more interesting collection. And even, Well, thank you very much. And I have to say that something I did not count on is that now that... So this is the much more evident at the Crocker because I've been helping them a long time. After 17 years of giving them a lot of work, many people have noticed that I've given certain things. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't count on is that I have noticed that a number of people who are supporters of the Crocker, who are very nice people, who tend to be mainly interested in modern contemporary, many of those people are impressed by the works I've given from the 17th and 18th century and mm-hmm. have complimented me on it. And it is seen as more prestigious what I'm doing because I'm not doing what most of the supporters are doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I've gotten, ex- as if I needed it, I've gotten more prestige because there's like this aura now. <laughs> like, he's for real. Yeah. Well, it's know, crazy. That, that, <laughs> So, so just for our listeners, the, he's talking about the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento um, here in California, and um, it's a lovely museum. Great. If you're in the area, um, definitely check it out. It, it has such a vast collection mm-hmm. spanning, like, all of art history. All of the things. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, it's, it's really a gem of a museum to have so close by. What other museums have you um, given art to? Right. So, uh, first of all, because uh, this is probably the, the least well-known because it was a much smaller gift, but I gave uh, three prints to the UC Davis Art Collection. Oh. That came about because... So, even though I am mainly interested in the old masters, I have this um, sort of an accidental post-war collector in a very specific area, and that's East German art. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think that pretty much verifies that I don't follow the prevailing taste. (laughs) Yeah, but that is so, that's such an intriguing, like, post, so post-war East German art. That, okay. Yeah, that's a very interesting... <laughs> that is. What is it even like? Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to figure it out in my head. So <laughs> this is the thing. So you've all seen lots and lots of art from post-war West Germany. Yes. <laughs> you cannot get away from it. <laughs> and I was actually in Berlin in 84. I spent two months... Uh, not two months, I'm sorry. I spent two weeks in East and West Berlin mm-hmm. in 1984. That must have been been nuts. I'm so glad I did that because I didn't realize things would change so much. Mm -hmm. Right. But that was so interesting. Anyway, so I spent two weeks there. And because I, when I was a student at Davis, I promised myself that I would not only go to Western Europe, I would also go to Eastern Europe because I felt like Mm -hmm. we didn't really get to see what they were up to culturally. All we got was the political. Right. Mm -hmm. Totally. What you have to understand is people living under a dictatorship are just as interesting as people who don't live under a dictatorship. Yeah, definitely. They're just under, they're just more restrictions. So there were a lot of interesting artists in Eastern Europe, in in East Germany, in Poland, in Hungary, 
they all had really interesting art scenes. Mm -hmm. But kind of weirdly, I got the most intrigued by the East Germans because there were some really interesting artists and they, the East German government, I think is the most paranoid government I have ever visited. <laughs> it has never really been depicted to an American audience the way it really was. There is yeah. this misconception that people who worked for these dictatorships somehow truly believed in communism. This right. is not the case. <laughs> right. The only people I have ever met who truly believed in communism lived in very nice Western countries. Everyone who's... <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone, everyone who actually lives in those countries knows how awful it is because things don't work. Yeah. yeah. People need things to work. In a place like East Berlin, right. you had these stores where a grocery store in East Berlin would have potatoes, onions, apples, and some bread. That's it. Wow. And a few cans. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the whole grocery store. Because it was so badly run. Mm -hmm. At the same time that they had great classical music, they had good art museums, they had good art academies. Mm -hmm. They had this very interesting cultural life because culture was one of the few things where you could basically do your own thing and thrive as long as you don't criticize the government. Right. For sure. Of course. So right. in that context, there were all of these really interesting artists. And by the way, rent was cheap. So the only thing, the only thing I like about communism is that the rent is cheap. <laughs> yeah. Damn. And and so that's real. <laughs> so keep that, that in mind. Maybe that's why there's such a like resurgence of socialist communist thought right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just cheapen the rent and we'll all calm down. <laughs> the best thing our society could do was would be to build small, pleasant, affordable apartments. Yeah. Yeah. What do we get? Oakland is getting more and more projects that are about huge luxury towers. Yep. That's not what we need. We need affordable housing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to get there. But I do know that there is some very good East German art that's still affordable. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could you that could you could open up the Templeton affordable housing and then you'd get a building. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he doesn't want a building. I don't want a building. <laughs> we will not give you a building. So okay, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I had one other question just about your sure. collecting and such. Is there like a one particular artist or mm. work that is just like ultimate goals, mm. like yeah, that I you wanted to know that as well. Like to acquire. Oh, for the future. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Like Ooh. something that you just really want. Yeah. And you haven't gotten your hands on it yet. Yeah. Wow. The short answer. Is, the short answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't that interesting of a question after all? I'll make it more interesting. Yeah. That, it actually, it's a really, it's a really good question. It's a hard one to answer. Mm -hmm. I, I would say that I have evolved in how I think about it. I, I'm thinking more and more this way. That well, first of all, I'll give you the really high concept. So this has been in the back of my mind for decades. I want to improve the cultural life of Northern California. Mm. So that's Great. the big goal. Yeah. yeah. It's a great goal. It's a really good goal. <laughs> uh, 
and it's possible to make a difference. That's what I've learned. Now, and when it comes to, I feel like one of the places where Northern California is the weakest is that our museum permanent collections are not as strong as they should be given the tremendous wealth of the region. Right. So that Agreed. should be improved. For sure. And that can be done. But what I'm thinking is we have, it's not like we have one big museum. We have all of these museums. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking what I kind of want to happen long term is that between, so for the focusing, since I'm mainly focusing on the European art, the idea is that I would like between the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, the Stanford the Cantor Center at Stanford, mm -hmm. the Berkeley Art Museum, and the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento. Between those four, which are the main collections of European art from mm -hmm. the past, mm -hmm. that between all four of them, that you get a rounded picture of the history of European art. Yeah. So no one of them can do it all, but they all have strengths. For sure. So I'm trying to give gifts to the Crocker and to Berkeley, which fill out that picture to to give them things they don't already have mm -hmm. to, so that there are less gaps, so that between all four, it would be a de facto national gallery of Northern California. And because all four are not that far apart from each mm -hmm. other, for people who are really interested, you could visit all four, and then over time, seeing the permanent collections, you could get a good sense of the sweep of European history mm -hmm. with really good examples. Mm -hmm. So basically... I'm more looking at it now as filling gaps. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, once they get to the point where they feel they can build a, a real collection, many of them, I think, this, this is based on reading about other collectors. So that's a new hobby, reading about collectors. <laughs> I'm always curious now. One of the things that comes through over and over again, so many of them, it's, it's, all, it's crazy because these very different kinds of people end up saying the same thing, which is, when I first started collecting, I wanted to buy a Monet. Mm. And then I realized Monet is really, really expensive. <laughs> and I may never be able to buy a Monet. Yeah. So I started looking at other things. <laughs> so, like, there are hundreds of people who have said this. Sure. They don't read yeah. each other's interviews. So they, <laughs> I think, well, they're too That's important. So Silly. <laughs> so many, many people you've heard of whom I will not name have said essentially that or some version mm -hmm. of it. Right. And then they said, uh, but I really like art, so I started looking more widely. And by the way, if you want an example of someone who uh, started young and is still collecting, it's Alicia Kaplowitz, mm -hmm. who's a Spanish collector. Mm -hmm. She started collecting when she was 18. Oh my gosh. What? She's from a wealthy family. Okay. <laughs> but, but she has made a lot of money on her own. And most okay. of most of the collecting is really her. She earned it. She bought it. Mm -hmm. She's been collecting for 45 years. Wow. This summer, they had an interesting survey of her collection in Paris uh -huh. at the Jacques Mar Entre. So it's one of the smaller museums run by the state mm -hmm. government. Mm -hmm. they, they showed a cross-section of her work, which ranges from uh, Spanish old masters to contemporary art. Whoa. And she's been buying what she likes since she was 18. Yeah. And she took it seriously. She learned. Mm -hmm. She kept evolving. Mm -hmm. she, she knows a lot about the history of art. And she doesn't just buy Spanish art. So there are a whole bunch of people in the world who want to mainly... 
uh, honor their heritage and right. just focus. So she's she has wide ranging taste. She she buys all kinds of stuff. I think she has a good eye. She's a good example of the self-taught, confident collector. So I highly recommend looking at the uh, catalog for that show. Yeah, no, that's it's great. interesting because mm-hmm. she. So she doesn't just collect one kind of thing. She doesn't just have one kind of taste. She does lots of different things. Mm-hmm. That is rare, mm-hmm, both sure. intellectually and also socially. For yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So it can be done, but I feel like people like her are the exception. So I guess, I, I hadn't thought of it this way, but to a certain degree, I want to do something that's sort of like what Ms. Kaplowitz did, mm-hmm. which is to... Look for quality and affordability, and then my thing being that it's a way to improve the quality of life in Northern California. And the other thing you have to keep in mind, I've thought about this a lot too, but I haven't, I don't have it all figured out, but I've been thinking for a long time that each of us has to confront the fact that as you get older, you have choices about both what you want your legacy to be, how do you want to be remembered, and also what do you want to do with your money. And the thing is, so you're at the stage where there's not enough money, and that's the last thing on your list. (laughs) But 30 years from now, it'll be different. So there comes a point when you start thinking about what do you want to do? There's the thing about money, it gives you security. It also gives you opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give you a really concrete example, which some of your listeners will relate to. Mm-hmm. So when I was young, I did sometimes fantasize about having a hot car. I've never had a hot car. <laughs> I don't even have a car now. <laughs> I don't care anymore. Right. When I was 17, I used to dream sometimes about having a Porsche, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Okay, so once you get to the point where you can actually afford a Porsche, you don't want it anymore. <laughs> At least, it, it, I mean, because by that time you've grown up enough to realize it's ridiculous. Yes. No one should have a Porsche. Yeah. <laughs> so, Seriously. <laughs> that, if there's one takeaway from this, episode no one should have a portion but it does mean it does so it means that i would rather give some really good art to the museums of northern california that Mm -hmm. will be there that will also outlive me right so my legacy will probably be the philanthropy Mm -hmm. and that makes me feel better about things. Totally. Yeah, yeah That makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying doing it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, it's, you're a gem. <laughs> it's like, I remember, like well, a gem to have. When we first, um, we got a very lovely tour of some of the works mm-hmm. that you had donated to the Crocker mm-hmm. earlier this year. And I think that was the first time we really got to like meet you yeah, and talk right. to you and things. And, and I remember beforehand, like I was excited. I love the Crocker and yeah. stuff, but like 
we didn't really know what to expect. We're like, okay, we're going to listen to our donor talk about art. Right. And then afterwards, like, we were all just like, that man's amazing. <laughs> like, because just the way you talked about the work that you cared about and right. why you wanted to give yeah. it yeah. Right. to the cracker and just, like, you were so invested in every piece that oh, you yeah. talked about. Yeah. And it was just like, this, yeah, this is it's what, really like, great. philanthropy and art donation yeah. and collection should be about. And that you know? was, I mean, I, it, I didn't get to go to the Crocker, um, but the time that we saw the brothers Lene, Lene, Lena, Lena. All those years of French classes have paid off for me big time now that I'm a collector. Because <laughs> yeah. if you can pronounce things correctly, you are better treated. Amazing, I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. We were just in France, and I was walking around like a Neanderthal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, but um, so we saw that exhibit, and then we also walked around with you um, in the Legion of Honor. And yes. so I am personally, I've never had a particular interest in 17th and 18th century um, <laughs> European art. And not because I don't think it's good. I just don't really know a lot about yeah. it. And my, my concentration has always been ancient and mm. modern mm -hmm. Mexican art. Mm. Oh, yeah. So nice. I'm very like honed in on that, but it really was a lovely experience to have somebody talk to you about these works that you've never really given a lot of thought to. Mm -hmm. And that was a really good experience for me. And I think that you're really setting this kind of example, I want to say, about what an art collector should be, really. Mm. Like, someone who collects and donates. And, you know, it's really good to know that what's been portrayed in the media about buying art right. isn't really what's going exactly. on. Yeah, right. That makes exactly. me feel relieved because it's always felt so perverse yes. to me mm -hmm. that there are these things that just sell for like millions of dollars right. and it, it really bothers me. Like especially, you know, something like going back to this Modigliani head, yeah. head of a woman. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's French, but um, <laughs> head of a woman. Um, how do you say that? Like tet? Yeah, tet d'une Oh, okay, what he said. Um, so, you know, Modigliani openly appropriated forms from these African yes. masks from right. the Fang and Don people of uh, coastal Africa. Sure. And Picasso did it too. And yes. all these yeah. artists yes. that were engaged in primitivism. And, and right. they're out there, these works are selling for millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, people are starving to death right. in mm -hmm. Africa. And, yeah. and that's always felt so perverse and just yes. has made me feel disgusted <laughs> with the art market. But now I am so much more interested and yeah. I feel like yeah. I want to learn more because totally. I, like I said, I think that not just I, but a vast majority of people, I think, have this idea of what art collectors mm -hmm. and buyers are right. doing. And I think that I am just pleased to know mm -hmm. that that's not always the case. Yeah, it, exactly. It's very true. And in fact, uh, when I was in my 20s, I really did think that the art market was essentially 
old money families mm-hmm. buying mm-hmm. beautiful yeah. decor for their homes. Exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that <laughs> it was at, completely at a remove and that there was no way I would ever be part of it in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's wrong. Yeah. That's that's a small percentage of what's going on. And you notice that, fortunately, you've never seen me in any magazine in the art world. Right. So <laughs> let's hope that continues. Yeah. Well, we're, we're about to blow you up. Uh, I'm a little concerned now. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, the, this has been so, so informative and eye-opening. Yes. And I am Every just... time we talk to you, it's, it's, yeah. it's just been, it's what a lovely day. We've had so much good... Before we even started recording, we talked for like two hours. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's it's just amazing, like, how much you know, and I just feel like Northern California is a better place in, oh. like, a, a cultural way because of what you're doing, and then your contribution to UC Davis made totally. our experience there so much better, and Definitely. I feel like the moments that we have spent with you um, looking at art have been some of the most enjoyable experiences mm-hmm. that we've had during our grad school yeah honestly yeah. because it yeah. was for the most part very painful <laughs> and, uh, so things like you know templeton colloquium and and uh going to museums with you and, yeah. and having you talk about mm-hmm. these works gives people like us this hope that like okay we can engage with the art world in a non-painful way yeah (laughs) yeah i'm so happy to hear that it's so gratifying and i do feel like art art studio art appreciation art history uh the experience of art that it has something to offer virtually everyone And there are different ways into it. And so we have to get away from this idea that if something is serious, it's not fun. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That if something is from the past, it's not relevant. That's not true. Mm -hmm. That only a few people get to have fun in the art world. That's not true. I know that for a fact. (laughs) By the way, you know, uh, there was a long period of my adult life when I lived quite frugally, and I was still having great experiences with art. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that is all possible. And that basically ignore the mainstream press and how it reports on the art market because they're giving this false impression. Mm-hmm. And the reality is uh, there are lots of interesting people in the art world And what I've really noticed lately, these last few years, is that if you visit a commercial art gallery, including the very best galleries in London and Paris, and if you show them uh, your respect and your sincere interest, they will light up and they want to share Mm -hmm. with you what they have. Sure. Because they're passionate about it and also, from a practical point of view, Eventually, you will become the people who are representing an institution that buys something. Yeah. And they know also that the high culture is somewhat out of fashion today. So they light up when you show enthusiasm. 
And if I had known how nice some of them were, I would have started going in the 80s, but I was sure. too intimidated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Intimidation of, is, we feel that. Right. Sure like every day. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I'm going to just walk into one of these places <laughs> every day and just be like, I'm just looking. Yes. And, yeah. um... Yeah, that's really great. Wow, I am so pleased that we got to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah. this, so this cool. has been great. More, any uh, more uh, final uh, questions? Yeah, any any <laughs> final questions or if you have any uh, final thoughts or anything you'd like to... I don't uh, think I have any more questions, but mm. we're always willing to hear your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Someone like parting well, ones forever. I, I will great. say there's something to keep in mind is that so when I first started helping the Crocker... I was just offering them uh, prints and drawings, uh, which uh, most of those early gifts are really interesting works that were not expensive. Mm -hmm. So if you have, let's say, so adjusting for inflation since then, let's say for anyone out there, if you have at least three or four hundred dollars that you could consider using to buy something there is good art that can be found for that and i have to tell you this so <laughs> the, and i'm fine it's a very nice print uh -huh. i found a print from central europe uh from, made in vienna mm -hmm. that's by an artist where the Crocker has the original drawing for it. And I found the print. Oh, that, cool. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we didn't even know that it was the basis for a print. Mm -hmm. So I found the corresponding print. And that print cost 20 euros. What? Excellent. Oh, man. <laughs> what? Why? Because it's totally out of fashion. It's early 19th century. It, there's zero glamour today mm -hmm. attached to that. Mm -hmm. Vienna in the early 19th century is not a hot area. Yeah. So 20 euros because that's the going price for a portrait print by a little-known artist in Vienna in the early 19th century, who, by the way, is well-documented. It's just mm -hmm. out of fashion. Yeah. Right. So I helped the Crocker with 20 euros. That's pretty cool. That is so amazing. Yeah. Like, I... I think that it's really important that, you know, if you are interested in art, you need to not let the trends right. influence something like, say, maybe like what you want to study. If you go on to like a grad program, mm -hmm. I think that there is pressure mm. in maybe like institutions of higher learning uh, when it comes to um, like what period are you going to study or what right. specific thing are yeah. you interested in? Yeah. And, and, um, and so there seems to be this trend is, is everywhere. So it's yeah. in the art market. It's happening in institutions where it really does feel sometimes like the push to study modern yeah. and contemporary right. is big and right. there are many people that right. you can right. work with right. and it's you know but it's really important to make sure that it's really what you love yeah. I mean, because oh, yeah. ultimately nobody studies art history for the glamour and the money <laughs> at all so <laughs> it's like when you're already dedicating yourself to something like art history mm -hmm. 
yeah, like, go with what you love. Right. You know? Yes. I mean, I did 17th century, and no one in our program, none of the professors were explicitly 17th century Baroque. I figured it out because many of them are brilliant, and they could branch into those areas. But, And this is great because if I collect art, it will be 17th century, and that is... Gonna be good. <laughs> Damn. Gonna be good. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. <laughs> well, this has been so informative, and I cannot wait to learn more on my own about the art market. And All right. we're really excited for Templeton Colloquium mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah. Templeton Mania will <laughs> we'll be hitting Davis once again, and we are planning on being around for that. I have a date. There's a firm date now. Oh, really? So it's going to be February 2nd, 2019. So if you're in the um, Sacramento, Davis area, even the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. um, and you really want to learn about something you didn't even know you wanted to learn about, (laughs) come out to the Templeton Colloquium at UC Davis. You know, the more people that we get, the more support that there Mm -hmm. ends up being for these events. They're um, just so fun and cool, and Mm -hmm. and you'll absolutely learn something that you just never thought about ever. Plus, the art history babes will be there. And we're going to be there. We can hang out. We're going to be there. Um, We're going to be... I don't know, experimenting with some kind of, maybe we'll do a, a on-the-spot episode. I don't know. I don't know. We will be there, though, so we can, like, have a glass of wine and we'll be there. talk about whatever cool stuff we'll we learn every, about. Everyone chats yeah. afterwards. We'll be drinking wine, <laughs> and our, our good friend, Mr. Alan Templeton, <laughs> will be there. Yes. All right. So mark your calendars. Yeah. Um, all right, let's do a quick listener mail. Sure. This one comes to us from Jenny. And subject is idea on a podcast episode. We love those emails. Um, Hello, I thought it'd be really cool if you ladies did a podcast episode on artists that had have mental illness or art pieces that are influenced by mental illnesses such as depression, being bipolar, or schizophrenia. I've struggled with mental illness for the majority of my life, and it would bring some comfort to know that this has been expressed through art. Mm. Thank you. Uh, My twin sister and I love your show. You have cheered me up on my darkest days. Oh, that's very sweet. That's so nice. That is really nice to hear. And that is a great idea for a podcast episode. Interesting. And we move it up our list whenever we get a recommendation or an idea for any of you. We kind of push it up in the queue. And we already have one idea from Alan for someone for this episode. So expect that to come out. (laughs) That is is a really, really interesting topic. And um, And there are many artists that we could talk about. Oh, yeah. Into a two-parter. And you're not alone, Jenny. We all in one way or another have dealt with uh, mental health, mental illness issues. And so I think that that would also be, at least personally, a episode that I really want to do. Yeah. So, no, I think that could be a really yeah. great thing. Look and, forward to that. And, and it'll be fascinating to research, so too. It'll be definitely. really good. So that That's one cool. will happen here soon. Yeah. I think we got a couple more lined up beforehand. We got, what, yeah. uh, Hilma of Clint? Yep. Mm-hmm. And the color black. Mm-hmm. We're going to be doing both of those coming up. And then, and then yeah, we'll probably do this yeah. mental illness one. That sounds... Really good. Thanks for the suggestion, Jenny. Yes, thank you so much. 
So thanks for listening all about the art world and art collecting and all that stuff. If you want to send us an email, arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Our Patreon, patreon.com slash arthistorybabes, starting in September. If you donate, you will have access to 20-minute bonus episodes yeah. every single month. More more babes. More babes. <laughs> more babes for your buck. <laughs> so definitely check that out. Also, we are on the verge of releasing some merch. <gasps> yeah. So look forward to that. That it's, is happening very soon. That's coming and it's going to be huge. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Also make sure you get on our subscriber list on arthistorybabes.com so we can start sending you newsletters about all the cool things we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll probably have the first one out in October. So get on that list. And... Any other cool things going on that we're doing? I mean, we're just awesome. <laughs> so Facts. Follow us on Instagram. Yeah. We history babes. Get all of our content mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Follow us on Instagram. Um, you know, yeah. Facebook. All art history babes all the time. <laughs> we're, we're everywhere. We are everywhere and we're, we're trying to keep that quality content coming to you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being on the show today, oh, yeah. Alan. Alan, we have so pleasure. much fun. You are a pleasure. You're a gem. You're the best. <laughs> Thank we, you. We have Templeton Mania and I couldn't be happier about it. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. Good. All right, everybody. Thank you. Have have a a good time. (laughs) From Cabernet to Montclair, they're here to slay the art history babes. Every single guy that was talking to me last night, um, I managed to get them to subscribe to the podcast. <laughs> yes. And then yes. I'd be like, That's five. unbelievable. <laughs> this happened five times Bye. last night. Five, five times. You we're got us five new subscribers. I did. We're going to like, hey, like, what's up? And then they're asking me all these questions, and I'm just like, I'm talking about me. And then <laughs> I'm like, um, I'm like, yeah, I have a podcast, me and my friends. And like, they're trying to impress me, and they already have their phone out because they're trying to get my number. And I'm like, actually, you should subscribe to the podcast. And then they find it on, you know, and I subscribe. And I'm like, thanks. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.